Okay, you're gonna. This is where they store their ammunition. It's not gonna look like much, but if you hit that, it's it's gonna be good results. And sure enough, you'd, you'd hit that, even though with the naked eye, it was just kind of a camouflaged lump on the ground. You hit that with a with a Maverick or, or bombs, and it would it would burn for three days. This is the Low Level Hell Podcast, episode twenty six. Welcome to the Low Level Hell Podcast, a program that explores the world of rotary and fixed-wing combat aviation through the exciting stories of the men and women who experienced it firsthand. Now, here's your host, U.S. Army helicopter pilot, Brian Harris. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show, episode 26, and we are finally, slowly working our way out of the long delay. I apologize, I had meant to have an episode out in January, uh, but uh, January turned out to be a lot busier month than I expected it to be. Uh, just a little personal update, I guess, for those who uh, follow along on social media and things. Uh, I moved back from New Jersey back to my home here in North Carolina uh, finish it up all the uh, flight training up there in, uh, in New Jersey at, uh, infinity flight school, uh, which is a, a great organization. Infinity flight group works with Mercer community college. So if you're looking for a, uh, 141, uh, training environment, uh, I, I can't recommend them enough. Uh, a huge fleet of aircraft. In fact, they had bought 10 more Cessnas, uh, when I was leaving, uh, that they had flown all the way over, uh, from Dubai, which, uh, if, if you didn't know this, you can actually fly a Cessna 172 from Dubai to the United States. You just have to stop about 30 times and, uh, and fly across the Atlantic with extended fuel cells. They actually took the back seat out of the aircraft and put fuel cells in there. And, uh, I guess special contractors had to do it because they had to wear, you know, special wetsuits and, and things like that. But, uh, just incredible. I didn't know that that was a thing, but, um, but yeah, finish up training there and um, actually just took a job. I'll be starting in April flying 737, so I'm pretty excited about that. I uh, had several job offers actually, uh, but that one was the uh, the most lucrative and uh, probably the, the better one for me just overall. So excited to get that started. Uh, but also in other news, uh, and I think I'd shared this before, at least uh, in social media, we had a little bit of a, a water pipe issue here in the house. So my, my entire bottom floor was flooded. And I uh, had to replace all the floors, but of course this happened right before the holidays, so it was very difficult to get contractors and insurance involved. Uh, so I, I came home just as that repair took place, and uh, you know was scheduled for two weeks. So naturally it took uh, actually it's not even done officially, uh, but it took about three weeks to get us back to, to living condition. So so I say all that to say this: uh, I've, I've been kind of busy <laughs> doing doing other things, and of course, unfortunately, to, to kind of do podcasts, you, you kind of have to be in the headspace too. Uh, the editing uh, sometimes is not so enjoyable, just kind of going back and listening to yourself over and over again. Uh, so, But we've we've managed the muddle through, and I'm talking with someone else to uh, actually take on the editing for me. Uh, so that'll, that'll streamline things as well. Now, I will uh, warn you as we get into this episode, there, there were some audio issues, and I think it had something to do, honestly, with uh, being in, in uh, where I was at in New Jersey, and my internet connection wasn't quite the same, but... Uh, uh, basically, we had to do the call over Zoom, uh, the normal program that I use, uh, something called Zencaster. It records uh, everyone involved. It records their conversation, their side of the conversation separately, which makes it very easy uh, to change audio levels and to, to edit things out. 
Uh, unfortunately, we could not get it to work for some reason, um, so we had to use Zoom, which uh, does not do that, or at least it didn't do it for me. Uh, it's all one audio, so so trying to trim through that it makes it a little bit difficult. So if there's some imbalance in audio, I, please just uh, I apologize. But I actually did just record episode 27 a few minutes ago with uh, with other guests and and it recorded everything well. So I think it had to do with my internet connection. So hopefully this won't be a, a recurring theme. Uh, but uh, so you may notice some some different audio uh, than normal and uh, and for whatever reason I kept losing. Uh, the guest in uh, the first about 30 minutes, uh, he would cut off, but then he would, it was like all that audio would catch back up. So, so there may be times where it sounds like he's talking suddenly very fast for a few seconds. And that's just the audio file kind of catching up to me through the internet. It's, it's it was very strange. Uh, it was very disorienting for me uh, trying to have a conversation with someone, but it only lasted, like I said, about the first 30 minutes of our conversation. So I guess about the first half of this interview It'll happen once or tw- it happens I probably four or five times. So, uh, But if you hear that, please forgive me. And I've done the best I could with editing any of those delays out. But if there are a couple moments where it seems like he didn't say something, you- you'll be able to fill in the blanks, I think. Um, but it-, it does make it just kind of awkward. And it's certainly not the quality that we shoot for here on the show. But uh, the technology just just wasn't in a supporting role as much uh, that day as it normally is. But I think otherwise you're, you're really going to enjoy this guest. I had a lot of fun talking to him, and we've talked about maybe doing some stuff here in the future as well. So uh, we'll just roll right into it. You guys enjoy. Colonel John Marks flies the A-10 Warthog for the United States Air Force Reserve. He has over 7,000 hours flying the Warthog. He also served as an instructor flying a T-38, and he's here joining us today on the show. Sir, thank you so much again for uh, part two of our attempt to get this interview conducted. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, just uh, thanks for your service of over over 30 years, if I remember correctly, from what we were talking before. Uh, yeah, I'm at uh, 34 years of uh, service right now, so I've uh, been doing it a while. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's fantastic, and I'm excited to talk to you and, and learn about your your tale. But uh, yeah, we'll just get started from the beginning. I mean, just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and how you got into aviation. Sure. Um, well, I I was born in St. Louis. Uh, I grew up in a suburb of St. Louis uh, called Florissant. It's in the uh, northern suburbs of, of St. Louis. Grew up there until uh, elementary school, and then uh, my father uh, was transferred around to a few different places. Uh, so I uh, haven't moved as much as probably a military family would, but I've got to live in several different uh, areas of the country. But uh, uh, I, I think my initial interest in aviation was was uh, probably due to uh, my grandfather that used to take me out to uh, land. And uh, he was very interested in aviation. Uh, he served in the Army, uh, Army Air Force during World War II. Uh, he had asthma, so he wasn't able to, to fly. And he didn't actually deploy overseas, but uh, he was just always very interested in airplanes. And I think he kind of passed that on to me. And and I always just had in the back of my mind that I wanted to wanted to fly. And and then as uh, years went on, and, and he was always building model airplanes and interested in, in fighter aircraft. Uh, got a chance to uh, kind of see how the the A10 had been uh, conceived and built uh, and built one of the, first model airplanes of, that came out of the A-10. I just thought it was such a fascinating airplane with the big Gatling gun. 
poking out of the front and, and just the overall design of the airplane is pretty neat uh, as I got to learn much more about why it was designed that way later on, but uh, just kind of fascinated with the airplane and was lucky enough to, uh, to get picked up by the, by the air force after college. I went to officer training school and then right to, straight into flight training. Uh, and then after graduation, uh, again, was, I did well enough in my, my flight training to be able to uh, fighter training, which then leads right, right into a 10 training and, I was actually a, a second lieutenant for a good six months in my my first A-10 squadron, which was pretty rare at the time. It's it's pretty much unheard of now, but uh, even then it was fairly rare because I just didn't have a lot of breaks in training. I went pretty much straight through the flight training program, uh, yeah. and then you know went on from there. I mean, it was a very interesting early part of my career. Was everything was cold in Germany? That was our uh, checkered flag base, we called it back then, where if the if the Russians were were to attack, we all had all the units had a pre-planned base that you would uh, deploy to and then try to, to push that back. But very different mentality, all very low flying. Uh, I like to say I probably didn't go above 1,500 feet uh, uh, AGL above ground level probably for the first couple of years of flying the A-10. It was all very, very low altitude centric um, mm. against the threats we had at the time. Or what we thought was our primary threats, and then, and then there was this uh, little country called Kuwait that got invaded, and it pretty much changed the trajectory of, of mine and a whole lot of other people's uh, careers at, at that time. Sure. Uh, yeah, and we'll get into that here in a second. But just tell us a little bit about um, you know initial training, you know the first time you're, you're flying A10. Just kind of talk about what you remember. Yeah. Uh, well, one of the the unique things, although. It's not as unique now because of the advent of uh, simulators and the way that they do pilot training now, but the T-38 simulators, but the A-10 did not have a simulator at that time. It was just kind of a procedures trainer, a cockpit trainer, essentially a, a mock-up of the cockpit that you would go over the procedures with your instructor and uh, and then get in the airplane and go fly because there were no two-seat uh, trainer aircraft for the A-10. So. That was that was pretty unique, uh, a little bit nerve wracking, but you just mm-hmm. they go over it with you. You, you kind of uh, you have your training and you kind of fall back on that, as with a lot of things. But uh, definitely exciting. You know, you're out there uh, by yourself flying it. Now he's chasing you with in another A10, but uh, do the the usual flight characteristic stuff as far as making sure you you know how the plane flies and it flies uh, pretty easy. It's a big. Uh, uh, traditional wing as far as uh, flies a lot like uh, it doesn't fly like the T-38, for instance. The 38 mm-hmm. was designed to, to be a much more high performance type wing that stalls with different characteristics. But the A-10 flies essentially like a large Cessna. It's got a big fat wing. Uh, mm-hmm. Although one thing I noticed right away was it's very uh, maneuverable in terms of it's almost like trying to balance on a stool. It's very uh, very sensitive to inputs, uh, difficult to trim. It's, it's tough to trim it up and just have it keep flying straight and level type of thing without constant inputs. But that's just the nature of, of how it's designed to be very uh, maneuverable. Uh, and, and, of course, probably the most memorable thing about learning to fly the A-10 is the first time you get to go to the, to the range and fire the gun because it it definitely shakes the plane and, and you uh, you smell the the gun gas comes into the cockpit because it pretty much comes out the front and goes up over the, the canopy and some naturally gets, gets inside the cockpit. And, uh, and yeah, it's in pretty memorable experience for, for most of us that fly the airplane. So, uh, mm-hmm. and that never gets old. That's still the most fun about flying the airplane is every time I get to 
get to go to the range and, and, uh, and, and we usually shoot about a hundred rounds and sometimes more on a, on a training mission. So, uh, that's always, always a fun part. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Cause we, we had a tens, um, at Pope air force base when I was at Bragg. Um, and I had heard that every time they launched, they had a, a few rounds that they would shoot. Was that, am I hearing that right? Uh, well, it, it depends. I would say mm. a lot of it depends on, on where you are flying the A-10s out of, for instance, mm. uh, Pope. I'm not sure. I was never stationed at Pope. I know that was a, a fairly, uh, new idea at the time where they were going to try to station like A-10s near the army units that they would support. It was kind of a, right. a different kind of concept. And, uh, but I know I was at, uh, stationed at Moody and we had, uh, a range uh, Grand Bay Fire Range. It was literally like two miles from the runway. So you would uh, typically at some point during your mission be able to come back and, and do uh, some range uh, work. So I would say we, we typically had uh, rounds available on almost every mission there. But for yeah. instance, here at Whiteman, we usually split our missions between what we call dry training. So we go to the operating area and practice uh, tactics uh, without actually expending any ordnance. And then the other half of the missions, we typically go to the firing range where we practice that. So I would say probably about half the time you have the, the, the jets almost always have bullets loaded, but uh, about half the time you get to go, go shoot uh, bullets. Okay. Yeah. There was a range right there. Um, and it, yeah, it just seemed like they were out there shooting a lot. And I, I'd, I'd heard that. I don't remember where I'd heard that, but um, yeah, that was cool. Cause we, we would get to work with them and, uh, and lay his targets for them and, and bring them in. And um, typically, typically most of the, the, the units, you get allocated so many training rounds. And then, so, sure. you know, if you're, if you only go to the range half the time, we just get to shoot twice as many bullets when you do go. So it really kind of all comes out to even. Sure. Yeah. Uh, another thing, since we're talking about the gun, I'd heard this years and years ago that the thrust generated from the firing of the gun could, I don't know how to say this, it would would essentially equal out and 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 cancel out the thrust of the engines. So the, if theoretically you had enough ammo, you could fire the gun and it would cancel out the the thrust and yeah, stop so, in the air. Uh, so uh, that's I would say that's that's partially true. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the recoil of the gun, like as with any gun, whenever each round is fired, it produces recoil. Uh, the right. recoil, the instantaneous recoil of the gun, is more than the combined thrust of the engines going forward. So what that oh, wow. really means in, in practical terms is if you were straight and level, not accelerating, and mm-hmm. you pulled the trigger, it's going to, the longer you hold the trigger down and, and it fires, it's going to slow the aircraft down. Now, you wouldn't actually ever stop, of course, an airplane. You sure. would stall before you got to that. But it, what's interesting is you never really notice that effect on most missions just because of practicality. You're, you're firing a 100-round burst, which is only a, you know, less than a couple second burst. And it, it just happens so fast. You don't really notice the effect. Plus you're typically yeah. diving at the ground when you're, when you're doing at least in a shallow dive and, and sometimes uh, a much more st- steep dive like we would typically do in desert storm. But what mm-hmm. was interesting is I, f- I actually did start to notice the, the kind of the, the speed break effect, if you will, of the airplane slowing down on some of the uh, missions in Afghanistan when we would uh, in some cases fire a pretty long burst tip- longer mm-hmm. than you would typically shoot against say a tank because you know a, a linear target or a uh, not a specific point target like okay we're firing at some insurgents in a tree line well you'd want to put a, at least a couple of hundred rounds and on that long of a burst you would actually mm-hmm. in some cases kind of notice the airplane 
uh, mm. slowing down almost like you would, you would put out the speed brakes. So it is a real effect and it is tells you just how powerful the gun is that the, the recoil is higher than the, the thrust. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, in the Apache, you know, we have a 30 millimeter, obviously it's not the same and it, it shoots at a much lower rate of fire, but yeah, even with that, just the recoil of that thing going off, you can, you can certainly feel the, the impact of the, the aircraft as it kind of, kind of tilts because the gun's hung underneath the nose and you just kind of feel the, the nose get pushed down and the tail come up a little bit when it, when it shoots. Right. You and, shoot that, and, that's, and they have, they, they had Apaches here at Whiteman and we used to uh, talk to those guys a lot and actually got to, you know, check out their airplane a lot closer. And uh, the 30 millimeter round, the, the, the round itself is pretty similar size, mm. but the, the casing is about twice as big for the A-10. Right. Uh, and it was interesting how, you know, they considered the, the 30 millimeter almost like an area suppression weapon versus we consider it a, like a point uh, right. weapon just because of the, the velocity. Essentially, the, the A-10 round, you can think of it as the same as a 5.56 in terms of uh, it's about 3,000 feet per second. It's just a, a giant size uh, 5.56, so very, uh, very fast round. Um, and that's another kind of leads into another uh, point where a lot of people ask, you know, how many rounds are tracers and how do you adjust to your fire for tracer? And we don't have any tracers because mm-hmm. if when you, the rate of fire or the, the velocity is so high that you essentially don't have, an, you don't like shoot and then correct based on tracer fire because you are, you pick your aim point, you shoot, the bullets are on their way, and then they hit. Yeah. It's not uh, the rate of fire is so high that you don't have a, you don't correct during the burst. I guess is what uh, sure what I'm trying to say. Yeah, well, and you've got a lot of systems helping you, right? So, isn't there some sort of stability system in the A10 that uh, if yeah, you turn so, it on, it'll hold? Yeah. So, uh, as far as the uh, aiming system, so that's probably the biggest thing that has changed since I've been flying the airplane is when I first started flying it, it was uh, essentially a weapon system. So whether or not you hit the target with the gun or the bombs was, was completely related to how well the pilot flew the set of parameters that you were trying to, to, uh, to aim for as well as uh, uh, for instance, if you're trying to do a 45 degree dive bomb, uh, which was, which is fairly typical angle that we used for bombing, you had to be on the right airspeed, right angle uh mm. and pickle at the right uh or release the bomb at the right point or the bomb's simply going to miss uh mm. and and then eventually we got uh uh computed systems that leading up to all into account and as long as you can fly your aircraft smoothly to the to the uh, reference point that's sh- that's shown in the in the hud the bomb should hit very close to the target uh, mm. and then of course that's just with unguided bombs now most of the weapons we deliver are all uh, precision guided bombs, either by GPS or laser or uh, uh, some other method that that is going to essentially make every hit a direct hit. So that's been a, a huge change. But the gun, particularly, you had to uh, essentially judge the range and how much uh, on how well you uh, you got bullets on target. And that was that lasted all through Desert Storm, where you had to really take a lot of factors into account to be able to hit the target. Now we have not only computed system that takes all that into account. We also have a a system on the jet, a a stability augmentation system, what we call a PAC, precision attitude control, that essentially when you decide where you want to point the gun and you uh, select a 
that point up to the limit of what the stability augmentation system can do. But essentially, it does feel like the, the nose of the airplane freezes on that point and which helps you put all the bullets right through that same point, get a lot of a bullet density. So that helps us take out the hardened target like a tank much, uh, much better. Yeah. yeah. And going back to the rounds, it, you know, it is the same size, essentially, you know, weapon system. But, yeah, ours is uh, kind of purpose built to to scatter rounds kind of all over the place and then the rounds are designed to explode. So that's why, yeah, for us, it's certainly a, an area effect weapon system, kind of like throwing a bunch of hand grenades out. Um, whereas yeah, yours is more kinetic and, and penetrating. Right. Although we, we actually have uh, the two primary types of ammunition that we shoot. One is very similar to that. Hmm. Uh, as far as it's a high explosive, uh, has lots and lots of small fragments and it's designed, uh, to, uh, it'll also go through most, uh, 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 saw, uh, not full armor. So say an, an armored personnel carrier or anything uh, short of that, it'll still penetrate that. But that's what we primarily use in Afghanistan. In fact, we didn't load armor piercing at all in Afghanistan. Because yeah. It doesn't make sense. So we used it very, what you were talking about as far as, uh, launching essentially a lot of hand grenades into a, a particular area to take, take people out. But mm-hmm. the, uh, the armor piercing is the, what gets the most attention because it actually is depleted uranium. It has a, it's an aluminum shell with a depleted uranium uh, dart in it, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a, if you're familiar with main battle tank ammunition, they're, they're yeah. discarding Sabo round. It's essentially when it, it just, when it hits the, the aluminum carrier vaporizes and the depleted uranium is what penetrates the uh, armor. Yeah. I was actually an M1 guy for a couple of years when I first came in here. Oh, wow. So okay. yeah, I'm uh, yeah, the old Sabo rounds, good times. Yeah. Um, okay, well, yeah, let's talk about Desert Storm. So you you sure. finished flight training, you get to your first unit, and I guess around that time, things are already starting to ramp up. Well, no, I, I was uh, I was at my first unit for almost almost uh, flight leader upgrade. So uh, I was a, a two ship. We split it into two ship and four ship flight lead. So I had just finished my two okay. ship flight lead training, and I can still remember. And on watching on the news that uh, uh, Saddam had invaded Kuwait. And of course, we were most people were familiar with with Iraq and, and Saddam Hussein and, and uh, most of that. But Kuwait, we were not familiar with. And I still remember going to the navigation room, which back then was actually a, a room full of uh, 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 maps, you know, actual paper maps. And uh, yeah. of course, there was no. Google Earth or any of that stuff. It was pull out the maps and, and start plotting the maps. And say, where in the heck is this Kuwait place? Mm. Uh, and what's going on over there? So, and everybody, uh, we kind of huddled around like, like uh, pilots tend to do when something's going on in the world and start talking about it. But people were wanting to know, where is this Kuwait? What are we doing? And we pretty quickly got word that, uh, we were, we were on alert to go. In fact, uh, we initially thought we could be leaving in as little as, as 48 hours. And so we're, uh, as you can imagine, at that time, deploying was not a normal thing like it got to be for the next 20 years. It was it was a very different thing. We had thought the only time we were going to deploy is if it was literally World War III and we were going to deploy to, to Europe type of uh, deployment. Mm-hmm. So this was definitely uh, a shock. Everybody, of course, was, uh, you know, I, I remember after you know so many deployments that uh, you have your bags already packed and it was like, OK, well, the next deployment's coming up and you maybe top off your your toiletries a little bit. and, and nobody had had uh, deployed before so we were trying to figure out what to pack and all that type of thing but we called it uh, for a while there we called it the tac bungee cord uh, tac being tactical air command which uh 
is no longer called that, but that's the, the command where all the fighters were in. But we call it the bungee cord because every day we would come in and we would we'd uh, meet in the main briefing room and and get the word on whether okay we're going, okay we're not, okay we're going, okay no we're not. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but but then we 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 did go, uh, and we ended up going. Uh, so it was. The longest flight I ever had in the A-10, one of, one of the flights over there, because they, they were very concerned that Saddam was going to keep rolling south and they didn't know what he was going to do, what his intentions, and maybe even take over Saudi Arabia. So they wanted to get us there as quickly as possible, which is, which is uh, challenging in the A-10 because it, uh, you know, move that fast. So getting us across the ocean. So they, they waived all the typical duty day requirements and flight length requirements. And I flew a, uh, and almost, uh, 14 hour uh, mission from the East coast into all the way into wow. uh, Spain. Uh, and that's, you know, uh, that's a lot of hours sitting in a single seat airplane. And, and uh, oh, yeah. so that was, uh, I, I launched as the air spare out of the, the East coast. And then which, so you, you take off in case one of the airplanes breaks in front of you. And then if they don't, you fall back to your flight. So that's uh, that was why it was such a particularly long flight for me. So, but yeah, they waived some of the requirements, so we got there, and and then we went into King Fahd Air Base in uh, in Saudi Arabia. It was a very large international airport that was under construction, so the only thing that was really finished was the runway. Uh, it was otherwise just a, a completely bare uh, place. Although we did not have to move into tents, they had uh, uh, workers' quarters that we moved into. It was all the construction workers who had all been sent home as soon as the the invasion happened, mm-hmm. uh, and so we moved into there. Essentially, like uh, uh, trailer trailer houses, portable trailer houses. With right. we, it was pretty cramped. We had four to a room, and uh, um, it was definitely a, an experience. I can still remember uh, uh, popping the canopy when we first landed at the airbase, and we had been met. Some of our guys had gone ahead to prepare and, and met us at the airplane with with uh, it was like a a sprite, and it was it was not cold. It was it, it was. <laughs> And it, it felt like opening the door to your oven when you're you're checking on on dinner, and uh, just super super hot, uh, just as you could imagine a, you know, almost a, as, as you imagine a desert, just looking out, going, wow, we've, this is definitely not, uh, not uh, what we're used to. Yeah, I remember stepping off the plane in Kuwait the first time, and it was like somebody just hit me with a hairdryer. You know, it was just yeah, just yeah exactly that same same feeling in, in Kuwait. Uh, after multiple trips to Kuwait, I, I didn't think I'd ever experience anything hotter than than Kuwait uh, over the over the years because there were some of those trips there that were just unbelievably hot. But I think I finally did top it uh, on this very last trip into Afghanistan in, in 2020. Uh, we we weeks of the quarantine with the COVID going on and. And it was, it was actually, it, it was hotter there. It was this, the hottest where if you came out of your, your quarters, it really felt like you, you had started a timer. Like you didn't, it really actually felt like you were in, your health was in danger if you stayed out <laughs> too, too long. Because not only do you get the, the well into the 120 degree there, but you get the humidity that's, that's nearly 100%. So it's, uh, it's a, that's a hot place, but uh, and, up until that where, point, Saudi Arabia was was definitely the hottest. Place. Yeah, and where was that in Afghanistan? You'd cut out right as I said the place name. Oh, sorry. Well, no, that wasn't in Afghanistan. Afghanistan oh, okay. was never actually too bad. That was on on the way over. We had to quarantine in in uh, Qatar uh, at uh, Al Oh, in Qatar. Yeah, yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, I think the, all those places right there because they're right on the water, so it's the humidity and it just right. makes it so much worse. There's no there's no escaping it. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah, I've I've always said that the reason we we do everything out of Kuwait is so that when we're in Iraq or Afghanistan, we're we're saying, hey, at least we're not in Kuwait right now. So yeah, I'll boost. That, that's uh, <laughs> I still remember uh, we're jumping around a little bit, but yeah, when when we deployed into uh, Iraq in 2003 for the for the invasion. Uh, mm-hmm. We went to the, a southern base uh, called Talil in the, the southern part of the country, mm-hmm. and, yep. and later later we they read we moved again up to uh, Kirkuk up in northern Iraq, and yep. you'd you'd swear we'd moved to uh, to paradise. You know there was actually oh, yeah. uh, some trees and some some greenery, and it, and it wasn't uh, sandstorm and and 120 mm-hmm. degrees every day, even though uh, objectively it was still pretty hot and dusty and not great, but compared to, uh, to the Southern base, it was, <laughs> it was a big oh, yeah. improvement. Yeah. I was just in Erbil a couple, couple of years ago and that's, you know, right, right by Kirkuk and right. we'd fly over there and stuff. And yeah, it's a different world. I mean, it's just, it's green, like you said, and it's not nearly as dis- destructively hot. Um, we had guys stationed down in Al-Assad. I'd go visit them and just be overwhelmed by the heat and flies and then just go back to Erbil and just be happy. Yes, know. yes, it was definitely a uh, an appreciation tour uh, <laughs> up, right. up there as far as uh you know compared with the, any of the southern places but yeah. 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 Well, yeah, so getting back to Desert Storm, so you guys arrive, you're getting set up. I mean, what what was that train up like? I mean, what was the feeling? It was it was very uh uh looking back and it was it was fascinating because uh, you know, we were there six months before the war kicked off, and for most of that mm-hmm. time, it was called Desert Shield. We yeah. didn't know if if we were going to be uh, uh, flying combat missions at all. In fact, I think most of us kind of assumed that at some point uh, Saddam was going to realize he was overmatched and, and kind of issue some type of statement and, and withdraw yeah. his forces. We really did not think it was going to go to a fight. And and then you start getting into, well, uh, you know, you, because none of us had flown in combat before. And so everybody was like, well, we, you know, we hope it goes to a fight because we want to experience combat. And then at the same token, you're thinking, what am I saying? This could be bad. I mean, he has a lot of defenses. And at that time, uh, he had a, uh, fourth largest army in the world. He had uh, some very sophisticated air defenses that, uh, were designed by the French. And it was, it was not a, a pushover in any way. In fact, it, it looked like it could be pretty bad. So. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, back and forth in your own head on, uh, do we want this to go to a fight, uh, or, uh, or what? So, uh, and part, the biggest thing that was different between that and, and mo- almost every follow on deployment I ever did, although 2003 was kind of this way, we just didn't know mm-hmm. how long we were going to be there. It just, yeah. there was no end date. There was no tour length. There was no checking off days on the calendar. <laughs> it was just every day, get up and go, well, it's going to another day. We didn't know how long it was going to last, but. Um, and then as it, uh, when, when, uh, president Bush issued the ultimatum and then, you know, now it got down to business and we, we started getting uh, serious, but what a big benefit of the, the six months there, to be honest, was the fact that we got time to acclimate to the, to the terrain, the climate and, and, and what we would actually do. Because like I said, we had gone from everything was going to be uh, fly as low as you can use terrain, uh, you know, European theater. And and we realized very quickly over there that that was just not going to work in a desert environment. The uh, the ground forces we were working with could see us at low altitude, sometimes like ten miles away. Mm-hmm. There was no 
there were there wasn't anything to hide behind. It was just open terrain. So we started uh, very quickly realizing that we were going to have to start flying higher and higher and doing uh, deliveries that we had just never practiced for uh, as far as you know, very steep dive bomb uh, from high altitude deliveries where we learned pretty quickly that they they were having a hard time seeing us. Uh, unfortunately for us, the easiest thing to for them to spot us was that we were painted dark green uh, from the European theater. And we tried actually to get some type of, uh, you know, like emergency order to paint us uh, gray or something like that. But that that never happened. So we were we were still painted our European dark green camouflage throughout the war, which which had an interesting effect after the war. They they interviewed a lot of the Iraqi prisoners and they thought that we were painted black specifically to as a psychological tactic so they could see us circling overhead up there uh, before before we attacked so that you know added a psychological yeah. effect which we thought was interesting like no that was that was not on purpose uh, yeah you know, we would have preferred you couldn't see us but uh, um, but That's yeah funny. so we, we really altered our, our tactics uh, in many cases having to kind of even come up with new deliveries to be to keep getting higher and higher and higher because we just we had not anticipated that we were anticipating, yeah. if anything, we were going to be uh, super low. So that that gave us a chance to really be more ready for for the uh, for the uh, attack when it came. It's always interesting to hear the perspective of your targets, you know, like I, I've heard, you know, feedback from from people, uh, Afghanis and Iraqis about, you know, 58s and, and, and Apaches and stuff, too. So it's always interesting to hear, you know, what we think and then what they think about certain situations. Yeah, completely fascinating. I got to read some of the the uh, the prisoner debriefs, and it's 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 really exactly it's it's so fascinating to read these guys that uh, they they talked about how in the Iran Iraq War, whenever there was an air attack, they they went uh, they scrambled and jumped into their armored vehicles because that was the safest place to be, right. because typically the you know the bombs didn't actually hit them; they were they would be protected from the shrapnel. And mm. they said they learned really quickly in, in Desert Storm that. In their words, and not mine, I, I think we, we did miss occasionally, but in their words, you know, we didn't miss. So they would they would actually run away from their vehicles and hide somewhere else because uh, if, when they hit in their vehicles, our, our, our Maverick missiles and, and bombs and bullets would uh, it would hit their vehicles, uh, which was they were not used to that. And so they, they quickly had to change their tactics for survival as well. But it, well, it's interesting, too, that you bring up the aircraft were all painted green and how much time, you know, when I joined the army, it was uh, 1999 time frame, And, you know, we weren't deploying, like you said. And so everything was still kind of painted and ready for that, that forest warfare. And then now, you know, it's hard to actually find things that, that aren't painted for the desert or, or something. But yeah, I remember right. doing some sort of training. I think I went to the joint firepower course where this happened. And so there was all these air force guys and stuff. And somebody had made a comment, you know, an air force guy says, yeah, back when A-10s were green, you know, as, as a way of saying long time ago. And I just thought right. that was a funny saying, you know, cause the army has other things that you would say, but you know, that one was, that always struck me as funny. Yeah. And I, I've been through that, uh, that joint fire park course as well. Uh, I was a uh, Balo in, in uh, Korea as part of my okay. career back when we, we still did that the battalion ALO. So uh, mm-hmm. your primary job, if, if the North Koreans attacked was actually going to be to go out on the ground with your, uh, with your army unit. So that was, uh, I did some, uh, some training uh, up on the near the DMZ uh, mm-hmm. and got to kind of experience a, 
again, that was a Korean war appreciation tour because my training was in the winter <laughs> and I just absolutely could not believe oh. how those guys could have survived yeah. in the fifties. They didn't even, I had the best cold weather gear that the army could provide at that time. And, and I was still cold yeah. all the time. So what, what year were you in Korea? Uh, 94 to 95. Okay. All right. Yeah. I was there in 2001 and yeah, it's, it is a cold Korea is cold in the winter. There's no doubt about yep. that. Yep. For sure. But yeah, I remember sitting in the cold in Korea one, one time and just freezing sitting there with my, my, in my Humvee. And I look at my driver and I said, uh, can you imagine the guys at Bastogne? Like those dudes, yeah. they didn't even have right. gloves, you know, and here we yeah. are complaining because our heater's not great. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, um, so, so desert storm. So, yep, the ultimatum. I mean, up to this point, you guys are just flying and getting climatized. You're practicing, you're, you're training, yep. but now it's live. I mean, that's yeah, the real thing. And, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're, uh, you're, you're doing your, what we call our fence check. And if you're doing the fence check for real, you're looking down, mm. you're literally crossing the, the, the fence and, uh, warming everything up. And yeah, the heart rate gets going, gets going good. But, uh, like most, uh, activities like that um you know you've trained for it and eventually the your brain uh you you put all the the uh the nervousness aside and you get you get down to business and and your your training kicks in and you uh they, they particularly interesting enough they they uh on the first mission they wanted us to just go in drop our our uh, bombs in that case uh we were most of us were carrying uh, cluster weapons uh, drop your, your cluster weapons on, uh, artillery sites. They wanted us to, the army was very concerned with the artillery. They had, uh, yeah. very, uh, well thought of D30, uh, long range artillery guns that the army was really concerned with. So they wanted us to find artillery mm-hmm. and just drop on that. Don't shoot the gun. Don't, don't shoot any tanks. Just mm-hmm. do that. Get back across the border and go to the, uh, kind of like, you know, just get your feet wet, get, yeah. get through the first mission get back across the border, get reloaded with bombs and then, and then head back out. We had a forward base at, uh, uh, we called it KKMC King, uh, Khaled military city, which was up, uh, pretty close to the border. Uh, so it was a, a just a short flight to, to get to that base where it was just a very, mm-hmm. uh, uh, rough, not r- the runway was fine, but as far as conditions, there was just enough to have, uh, some guys there that would, uh, uh, refuel you and, and reload you with uh, with armament, and then you would take off again. And we would do that sometimes a couple times a day, and then eventually mm-hmm. head back to the main base. But uh, the second mission, you would go. We went up, and and at that point, uh, you know, again, can't even describe how much different it is than today's operations. There, there were no drones. There was very little surveillance. Uh, we didn't have access to satellite imagery. That was only for mm-hmm. uh, much more higher priority missions. So we, you had a paper map. You had uh, uh, we had an INS at the time, not like a GPS. It, it, you would kind of know where you were mostly within maybe a mile right. and you had kill box assignments. So they divided the whole country up into, into kill boxes that were on lat longs, usually about 30 mile by 30 mile. And you would just go look for, mm-hmm. uh, for enemy forces. And if you found them, you didn't have to call back and request permission to attack. You didn't have to, there was, there was none of that, uh, it was just strictly a, uh, you know, the, the, the difference is really striking when you look at, say, for the last trip to Afghanistan, where the ROE, the, the rules oh, of yeah. engagement were, were, were as thicker than a, a phone book. And uh, I, we pretty much had a, an ROE pamphlet for Desert Storm. It, they pretty much said, go into your <laughs> kill box, find military equipment, uh, uh, 
uh, destroy as much of it as you can and report report back on, on what you hit and if there's still targets remain and then go do it again. Uh, and that's, and that's what we did. So, uh, we got some really good briefings from our, uh, our, our glow, our, our ground liaison officer, who's an army, mm-hmm. uh, our, uh, army, uh, person that's assigned to the squadron. And they briefed us very, uh, accurate descriptions of how the Iraqis set up their ground forces. They very much followed their, their Soviet doctrine training on how they set up their, their mm-hmm. forces. And, and they said, Hey, if you see this kind of pattern in the desert, then, you know, this is this is what you're going to see and right. or, or this is where you should concentrate your attack because these are going to be the most lucrative targets. And in many cases, that was that was uh, completely spot on. Like they'd say, OK, you're going to this is where they store their ammunition. It's not going to look like much, but if you hit that, it's it's going to be good results. And sure enough, you'd, you'd hit that, even though with the naked eye, it's, it was just kind of a camouflaged lump on the ground. You hit that with a with a Maverick or, or bombs and it would it would burn for three days. So. <laughs> Uh, uh, so we got a lot of good information on that. A lot of it was just strictly naked eye, uh, and, uh, we use binoculars, just, just, uh, hard, uh, you know, uh, sporting goods store, uh, mm-hmm. big, big 12 power binoculars to try to, to get details. The, the key was to try to get your first licks in before they saw you, um, which, so we would stay up high and, and, uh, try to take out any threats that we could find before they were able to start, uh, Filling, you know, filling your altitude with a lot of, a lot of flak and, and, uh, uh, anti-air fire. So, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, it was just, uh, go out in your kill box, find stuff. There was a lot of, uh, talking back and forth between pilots. If a guy was coming in and you were going out, uh, typically you would run out of ammunition or armament before you would run out of gas in a lot of cases. And so you would leave the next guys are coming in. You'd either show them if you could, if you had time or just describe where you were just attacking so he could. Uh, keep keep the uh, you know keep attacking so uh, yeah big boy rules sounds yeah for sound sure <laughs> uh, for sure <laughs> it was uh, not realizing how much different that would be than you know yeah. than everything being controlled uh oh. so tightly later on it was yeah it was definitely uh kind of a, a, a certainly not a, a free-for-all but it was definitely a, a lot more yeah. of a free attack uh situation yeah well, I mean, you know, obviously it's just completely different scenario and different environment. You know, you, you just can't do that with villages and towns. No, and stuff, absolutely. You know, I mean, you, know. you, you look at you look at uh, the the whole situation. I mean, Saddam yeah. drove an entire army into a featureless desert and <laughs> and had it and had it sitting there. And not only that, yeah. didn't even disperse his forces. And uh, some of the things actually, interestingly enough. Uh, you know, well, essentially, like most militaries, and he was fighting the last war. And in that mm-hmm. war, uh, he, if you protected each tank with a kind of a, a, a berm, a, a revetment that we call it, where they bulldoze up some, you know, some dirt mm-hmm. around it, that would protect it from from most of the the attacks. Well, for us, that that just not only uh, it made it easier to spot them from the air because of the disturbed mm-hmm. earth, we could we could spot them because of surprisingly just a single tank sitting in the desert with nothing around it is very difficult to spot. But mm-hmm. when they were sitting in these prepared positions, we could see them. And then later on, we learned that uh, the other thing they were mainly for was to protect against tank fire. And they didn't even do that because, yeah. well, <laughs> as you well know, the M ones discovered pretty quickly, they could, they would, yeah. they could shoot right through the, the dirt berm and it would still penetrate the tank because yeah. of how much better our, our guns are. So, yeah. uh, 
Yeah. So there was a lot of different situations that made it, uh, a, if you will, a, a perfect war for for uh, for us as far as being able to just spot them and not have any restrictions on, on taking them out because they weren't parked in, you know, in a village or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned binoculars. I, I was actually reading an article about you and, and it talked about how, you know, I don't know if you still do it, but, but that you would you would carry binoculars even with the more advanced aircraft and the more advanced kind of targetry, you know, capabilities that the, the newer A-10s have, but kind of old school in that way. Yeah, absolutely. I still do. Uh, although I've modified my, my technique a little bit, I actually carry a monocular because we, we, we mm. fly with it with a, as you well know, in the Apache, you, you have a, ours is a similar concept. Obviously it's not exactly the same, but it's a helmet mounted right. sight. We call it the helmet mounted queuing system. So you have essentially a, a piece of glass over your right eye mm-hmm. that lets you, uh, aim your, uh, your sensors. And it's a fantastic improvement, but to keep from having to move it out of the way, I just use one on my, <laughs> I, yeah. I can just hold it to my left eye. But the reason I still do it is there's still just a lot of situations where you just want to you want to pop something uh, on your eye and, and take a, a quick look at it a little bit more blown up. And we don't have uh, color uh, capability on our on our uh, targeting pod. So uh, the biggest thing I use it for these days and I try to teach all the guys I fly with is that, uh, you know, the, the friendlies put out uh, marker panels most of the time and yeah. uh, to be able to see that. Uh, it helps to have helps to have your uh, binocular handy or monocular handy to be able to spot the uh, color. Yeah, yeah, those orange panels, yeah, they pop out. Yeah, no, I I I like that because I did the same thing in Kiowa. We we would we tried it. It's you know obviously with a with a helicopter you're bouncing around quite a lot, right. quite a bit more, and it's much harder. But we did try it. But um, same kind of idea is that yeah, this is this technology is great, but if it fails or or like you said, there's sort of these gaps of capability. If you don't have color, you, yeah, you can't see a VS-17 panel very well, and, and that could be a, that could be a big deal. So no, I think that's cool. One thing I did want to ask you because this is this is older A10 stuff, um, Desert Storm timeframe. My understanding is, you know, those older systems you didn't have targeting pods. Um, and right. So yeah, we it, didn't get the targeting visual. pod until actual 2003. Actually, on the invasion okay. of Iraq, that's one of the reasons. As a reserve unit, we were there for a year when all the other A-10s went home is because we uh, we had the targeting pods. And that was an initiative that the uh, that the reserve took on to to get us that capability. And it kind of made, had a, gave us a unique capability. But, yeah, up until then, uh, yeah, the whole idea behind a, a sensor pod that you could see, you know, people uh, mm-hmm. many miles away and all this great stuff was, was just that was science fiction. We didn't, didn't have <laughs> any of that kind of. Kind well, of, it didn't uh, match with your tactics, right? I mean, you were describing before when you first came in, it was it was don't go above fifteen hundred feet. What, what good is a targeting pod going to do if you're well, that's around in the trees? Sure, and, and that's absolutely a good point. Uh, that it, 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 you know, how it's we always think, well, if we'd only we'd have had that in Desert Storm, but you know, it, it's everything kind of goes together. Uh, right. So yeah, the, the march of of technology, but yeah, that at that time. Uh, the A-10 was was uh, its main focus was that uh, to be when they bought it, it was to be affordable uh, and and uh, keep the cost down. So there were many features they left out that even could have been capable. For instance, the A-7, uh, which was kind of the forerunner to the A-10, but it had a now again, it was it was an analog system. It wasn't any of the kind of the modern stuff, but it had a moving map system and hmm. some pretty advanced features for its day. In fact, uh, when a lot of the A7 pilots transferred, uh, switched to the A10, they were very surprised that essentially in many ways it was 
it, it, had, uh, it was a step backwards in terms of <laughs> uh, like the A7 had a fully computing bomb system where the A10 did not uh, initially. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but uh, you know, it was, it was designed as a, as kind of a day visual, had a big gun, uh, stay low, spot the, spot the, uh, the Russian tanks and, and uh, take them out. And then of course it's, uh, been modified in, in many ways to, to be able to do all the different missions that we do now. One thing I had heard in Desert Storm of guys doing is you, you did have a screen, right? But it was for the Maverick. Yes. We Being did able have to a, basically use the Maverick as a poor man's targeting pod. Uh, exactly right. Uh, the plane was designed initially. It's, it's, it's one of its, its two primary weapons. Obviously the, the, the Gatling gun is the primary weapon, but also it was designed with the using the Maverick uh, anti-tank missile as its uh, all, as its co-primary uh, uh, weapon, if you will. And so it was designed with a uh, a small uh, green screen. It was a old school cathode ray tube kind of uh, a screen in there that was that's just the way the technology was at the time, and that was strictly to to see the picture presented by the Maverick missile. Uh, which is a which the versions we fired at the time. There's different versions now, including a laser version. But the version we fired was a, a you lock on and then a fire and forget. So that was very advantageous to us. If you could lock it on and you didn't have to guide it all the way to impact, you could you could maneuver and try to avoid the, the threats. But that screen was strictly for that. Uh, it didn't do anything anything else. And the uh, in the squadron I was in in Desert Storm, we flew all day missions, but there was a squadron that did the night missions. And so they, uh, you started innovating, trying to figure out how to, you know, how do we find targets at night? Uh, cause up until that point, it was, it was old school tactics in terms of, uh, to find targets at night, you would just have to kind of guess where they would be, put out some parachute flares, hmm. uh, and then look, you know, underneath the parachute flares and see if you could see anything versus, uh, obviously today we would do that entirely different. But, uh, so they started using the, the Maverick, uh, instead of of shooting it at the first target they would see, they would actually use it to uh, scan and and find the hotspots to essentially use it as a like you said a poor man's targeting pod uh, to find targets and then uh, try to employ on them and and at least to get a, a position where okay now we know where we can drop our parachute flares to have a good chance of seeing the targets type of thing. So uh, okay. yeah, very innovative at the time and essentially the forerunner of, of kind of uh, tactics that we would, we would do now with much more sophisticated sensors. Was there back then, was there any indication in your HUD of where the Maverick was looking or was it completely just looking at that screen? Yeah, it, it, uh, no, it was uh, you, you would roll, uh, roll in and, and you had a reference in your HUD where the initial point of where the Maverick would be looking at essentially where its bore site was. Okay. And then once you started slewing off of that bore site, then yeah, you really didn't have any indication outside of okay. where where that would be. So you just had to kind of interpolate. Okay. Yep. Did you guys yep. fly um, night vision goggles a lot, or how did that? Uh, there were no night vision goggles at that time, mm-hmm. as far as in fighter aircraft at all. Oh. Uh, in fact, I we did not start flying with night vision goggles in the A10 till 1994 when I was uh, in in Korea. That was another of all the revolutionary changes in tactics over the years. That certainly has to rank up there. Uh, near the very top. Uh, we don't even yeah. think anything of it now. Everybody comes through training yeah. like everything. But at the time, that was a big deal. 
and of course now we even have a, a newest generation of of MVGs, which is even better. Uh, they're they're now fully as good as your visual acuity. The, the previous versions were very good, but not quite, you know, full acuity. Now they're just as good as your eyes. So uh, it's pretty pretty impressive. And they're not green anymore. The you know the old green MVGs, yeah. like in all the video games, is obsolete. They're no longer green. They're just plain uh, black and white. Yeah, I was talking to, I stopped flying here a couple of years ago, but I was talking to some guys who still are. And yeah, they've got the new stuff coming out. And even the new Apache, I guess the version six Echo model has got color screens now too. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't even know anything about like the F-35 with their uh, in-helmet in uh, MVG capabilities and everything else. I'm sure it's even more advanced. So. Um, yeah. But, well, uh, I like to just tell those guys, you know, I flew when it was hard. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. It, it is amazing though how much how much brain power you have, used to have to do just yeah. for the basic stuff. I mean, literally, uh, just just keeping track of where you were, uh, yeah. just being able to navigate off of uh, maps and at low altitude, just trying to figure out uh, just the basics. And of course, uh, it's it's so much nicer when you can focus all your energy on on the mission itself and not worrying about where you're at and how yeah. you get to where you're going and all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, you wonder how we even did it, but at the time you just like anything, you don't, you don't think about yeah. it. It's just the way it is. So. You, you don't know that it can be easier. <laughs> That's if, right. You know, That's right. Cause, you don't, you cause don't the know. guys who from before you are telling you that it was harder back then. So yeah, you never know for yeah. sure. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc well let's talk about uh what i believe if i get the date right is this february 25th uh, oh yeah desert so, storm. so desert storm yeah, yeah. Uh, uh that was uh uh probably the the, the most memorable well, not probably. It certainly was the most memorable day for me of Desert Storm, just because of uh, the success we had on that particular day. But uh, it started out as uh, uh, nothing special. In fact, we were uh, we, we were on uh, alert. So the idea was you would have uh, you had all your planned missions, but then they would also have a, a, a two ship on alert. So if there was a particularly uh, either a bad situation that a ground force was going, this was during the ground war. So the ground war had started. Uh, and so we had, uh, obviously the army wanted to make sure we, we were available for, for close air support if, if needed. So they had, uh, two airplanes on alert. And so you would just check all your systems at about, I mean, as I recall, it was very early, uh, before dawn, uh, that you would check the jets and then you would just go back into the squadron and, and, and sit around and wait for them to call you if they particularly had a, either a lucrative target or they needed some, 
uh, a particular close air support. So, and what was that? I don't want to interrupt, but like what sure. kind of turnaround time was that? So if you, you, cause we did the same thing. If you were on QRF, you go out, run up the aircraft, get everything set and then go sit. But like, if you got that call, I mean, how long was a good average time? Uh, we, we tried to be airborne within like 15 minutes, uh, okay. which wow. was, I think the requirement was like 30 minutes, but we could typically top that if we, cause it, you know, you'd have the jets ready to go and, and the crew chiefs would, would crank up the, the auxiliary power unit before you even got there and you could get everyone pretty quick, yeah. but typically you didn't launch from alert. Uh, typically most of the time we would sit there and wait until, and then like towards the end of the day, they would launch you anyway to just go, sure. go fly and, and see if you could fly and carry us. But on this particular day, uh, and it's funny because uh, you know, even though it's interesting how you're, how the brain works, but you know, after a while you're like, all right, I, I know we're just going to go back in the building, so I'm not going to strap in. I'm just going to we're just going to check the radios, <laughs> and we're going to be good to go. So of course I was just sitting there. I didn't strap in uh, because so far up into then we just there hadn't been any big, uh, you hadn't been launched or anything. So yeah, uh, and it was early in the morning. So uh, and but then sure enough, we get you, you check your radios and you check into ops. You say okay, uh, uh, Nitro six one on status. Not, I think that was our call sign that day. We had all kinds of different call signs. They were all based on either explosives or, or types of guns, like mm. brand names of guns. So I don't know whoever's coming up with the call signs, but uh, <laughs> uh, they were being uh, creative. But we checked in on status and they said, stand by for words. And we were like, uh, okay. You know, on, let me put my shoes on. <laughs> so, so suddenly I'm like, I'm scrambling, trying to write the information down and get my straps tightened up and, uh, and holy cow. So we launched uh, right at, at dawn, um, because some of the night guys, again, using their tactics, like we talked about, they had found a, a convoy, uh, but they just didn't have the gas or time to, to hit it. So they passed the words and, and left. And so, uh, we, we launched, it was right into the, what we call the tri-border area where the Kuwait, Iraq, Saudi border area comes together mm-hmm. and, and essentially found a, a, a convoy of uh, Iraqi tanks. Uh, they had, by the time we got there, they had stopped moving. They'd all pulled off the road, but you could see where they had churned up the the sand and it was, it was fairly easy to spot them uh, and they were still running. So they stood out very easily on our IR sensors. Uh, mm. And it was just a, you know, what, I guess what you could call a dream target for an A-10 pilot. You look in there and you go, holy cow, yeah. uh, there's more targets than we can hit. So we just started, uh, launching our Maverick missiles and attacking them with the gun. And I can still remember looking back as we, we left the area uh, because we were out of, out of uh, ordinance uh, f- leaving the area for the, the forward base and looking back and seeing, you know, eight, uh, eight pillars of, of smoke rising up uh, where the, all the, the burning tanks, because typically they would, They'd burn for a few hours uh, after mm. they were hit. So, just kind of uh, writing notes on the on the canopy. We used to write on the canopy with grease pencil back then, yeah. and uh, you know, just taking tick marks of what we had hit. And we thought, okay, man, this this day is already fantastic. We're going to go up to the FOL. We'll go back on alert. We'll sit there, you know, for the rest of the day and, and fly home because it's already been a success. But uh, we we stopped at the forward base, got out of the airplane, went back in the the alert shack and they said, get, get back in the airplane. We got another, uh, you know, another mission for you. And we we're like, Holy cow. So we, 
ran back out to the airplane, cranked them up, uh, and, and headed back out. And, uh, that second mission was probably the craziest mission of the war because it was, it was in Kuwait, uh, the, uh, the, and it was just kind of a, the, the environment, there was a, a, a weather deck in the six, 7,000 areas, I recall, hmm. which for us was pretty low at that time. We were used to operating higher than that. And it was just, hmm. you had burning, uh, just, uh, you know, burning targets everywhere with, uh, and just a dark, uh, you know, just a man, I, I wish I could, you know, put a, paint a picture of it, but it was just, uh, it was, it was not the bright sunny day that a lot of our missions were operating under. It was like dark mm. and gloomy and it was, there was rain and stuff was burning everywhere. Uh, and, uh, a, uh, a Marine, uh, airfac and an F 18, it was in the area and he was, uh, marking targets for us. And it was a pretty high, uh, threat area with a lot of triple a, uh, and we of course were staying below it and he was, essentially staying above the clouds, coming down through the clouds, shooting a couple of rockets and just rocketing back up into the clouds. I remember thinking it must be nice to be able to, to do that. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah. And then, you know, so we hit another whole group of uh, uh, Iraqi armor that was uh, kind of in a ring around Kuwait city and just, uh, you know, cleaned off the airplanes and emptied out the, the guns, shot all the Mavericks uh, and thought, man, this is, this day is really just uh, we we're just happy to get out of that particular area and not get shot because it was uh, just they were definitely lighting us up quite a bit. And uh, again, uh, got back to the um, to the forward base and uh, and they and uh, they launched us again uh, from there. Um, hmm. So. You know, just like, you've got to be kidding. Really? They're going to launch us three times. This was kind of unprecedented at the time, but they were like, Hey, what's your, uh, actually uh, the third mission, we had actually gone back to the main base at King Fod. So we thought for sure we were going to be done for the day. And they said, Hey, how much time you got on your, on your duty day? Cause the duty day was, and even in combat, they're very strict on that stuff, which is, which is good. Keep you well rested and everything, but you know, you have 12 hour duty day. Like how much time you got left on your duty day? And so we're looking at going, yeah, we got this much time. Like, okay, go. Uh, we didn't even get out of the airplane on that one. They just fueled us. And we, and, uh, third mission was up much closer to uh, Kuwait city. Uh, again, just, uh, you know, more, more tanks, uh, they had, they had found and, and, uh, I still remember, uh, coming back after that third one. And of course they, you talk to your ops when you're coming back and tell them how many bullets and, and bombs and stuff that you dropped. And, and, uh, so it was the third mission in a row that we had reported, uh, essentially zero, zero, meaning you don't have any bullets. You don't have any Mavericks left. And they said, wow, that, uh, you know, must've been a, a pretty good hunting out there. And then I, I just read off how many, tanks we had hit that day because it just so happened that we had hit all armor that day and it was it was 23 uh, destroyed like what we call k kill meaning they were burning 100 percent destroyed and then 10 uh, damaged which we shot them we saw effects but they, they didn't catch fire so typically we would just report those as damaged so they were uh they were pretty surprised by that in fact the 
the squadron commander had called at that time, there was a press pool. So they were always looking for stories because mm-hmm. they, they didn't have embedded reporters. They had to kind of take whatever stories they had. But our, our squadron commander had called the, the, the PA, the public affairs and said, Hey, we get, we said a couple, uh, two ship come back with this many tanks destroyed in one day. And, and, uh, so we actually got uh, interviewed on CNN the next day. So that was pretty exciting. Yeah, that's a, like you said, I mean, that's a A-10 pilot's dream. It sounds like just finding tanks in the open. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and not only that, but at that point in the war, we were carrying uh, a different style uh, launcher than we do today. So we could carry, we were carrying uh, four Mavericks per mission plus the full load of the gun. And uh, at that time we had the option. I like to say it was, it was kind of like the, the best Burger King drive through you could do like up at the forward base, you could pull in and tell them what you wanted on the airplane. Like, okay, give me two infrared Mavericks and two, uh, two, uh, EO Mavericks and, uh, uh, four cans of CBU. And he'd say, okay, uh, okay. Sounds good. And then, you know, you would just kind of have them load up what you wanted or he'd say, Oh, we're out of the, we're out of that kind of CBU. We got this kind. Okay. I'll give me that. So, uh, and on that particular day, since we knew, most of the time they were launching us against armor because of the alert that we were on. We, we elected not to carry the the cluster bombs because they weren't good against armor and they just added a lot of extra weight and drag. So it was the, the perfect anti-armor uh, configuration. You know, we had the, the, the combat mix 30 millimeter and we had the Mavericks and, uh, and that's it. And so it was, it was a pretty much a perfect setup for that. Hmm. So, I mean, when the ground war started, it was quick. I mean, it was a hundred hours. Uh, is, is the right? Yeah, is the number. So, so this we like to think we war. like to think we had a lot to do with that because uh, we got a lot of reports from the ground guys that they essentially, and again, not to take away from they, they sure. certainly uh, had battles and got into uh, uh, I know the seventy three Easting battle and some mm-hmm. some some pretty good battles, but. Most of the time they reported they just drove by a lot of burnt out equipment uh, that uh, we had already uh, yeah. had already taken out. So I felt we felt pretty good about that, that it was the timing was right. You know, we had oh, we yeah. had uh, taken out enough of the enemy that uh, they were going to have a uh, less of a hard time going in. And, uh, and, it, and it worked out that way. Well, there were so many things like you pointed out before, you know, the. The Soviet style of, well, this is what the book says, so line up this way, coupled with the fact that, you know, GPS was a relatively new thing back then. And so, you know, they they pretty much stayed to the roads, from what I understand, because the idea of just crossing the desert with a bunch of vehicles didn't Right. Really and the, the, you know, what a brilliant idea, uh, you know, as far as hitting them on the, the flank from the West, because in, in their view, that was how could Possibly. anybody how could anybody <laughs> attack from uh, the featureless desert to the west the, you know it yeah. wasn't even it wasn't even possible and all of yeah. a sudden an entire uh, and i can tell you some of the most uh, just amazing awe-inspiring things i've ever seen flying the airplane it was desert storm with uh, during the ground war when it first uh, started just uh, some of the the close air support missions that we did which was totally different than any other kind of close air support because uh you know, because of the terrain and because of the speed, but just seeing, looking down and, and going, okay, well, I wonder where we're going to see the friendlies and looking down and realizing that almost from horizon to horizon, as far as you could see, was this line of advancing armor and uh-huh. they were not going slow. They were moving right. out 
and yeah. just looking at that going, holy cow. And, the, you know, talking to the, to the ground controller who was in an M113 and he could, you could hardly hear him because, you know, he's bouncing along and that thing's going as fast as it can, but it can't keep up. And he's like, yeah. all right, you know, do you see where the front line of friendly troops are? And I'm like, yeah, we see it. Uh, we, we definitely can see it. He's like, okay, you know, go three miles in front. And if you see anything, shoot it and tell us what you, what you shot. And so, you know, we go up to the course in the desert, you could had no trouble looking out ahead of them. And yeah. if you saw anything and it was very nice to be able to go, all right, look out, you know, to your 12 o'clock. Do you see the, the four burning uh, or do you see the four pillars of smoke? Yes. Okay. Those are four tanks. We just shot them. We don't think there's anything else. And hmm. then they'd be all right, thanks. And then they would just, you know, go right past that position and keep on moving to the next one. So yeah, it very, seems like very impressive are... to see that army on the move. Absolutely. I, I mean, as an armor guy, that was like the dream, like, yes. like the desert storm, you know, and I, I sometimes I, I fear, you know, just like you said about Hussein fighting the last war is so many times where I think we all just kind of long for like, you know, let's just have another desert storm. Let's just do that. You know, because it's, you know, <laughs> it's it's a little bit more cut and dry than well, sure. you know, and, and like, for two dudes with an RPG. Like any military man, you, know, you, you want to fight the war uh, of your choosing uh, yeah. instead of <laughs> instead of the one you're handed. But uh, right. uh, in that case, you know, all of the Army's training and our training and everything all had come together. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and the advancement of technology, the first the first time where the, the laser guided bombs and uh, not for us, but for other airframes, uh, yeah. you know, all kind of came into the into the front. Well, let's uh, let's fast forward, because I know you did multiple deployments in uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. But really, you know, we, we could spend hours, I'm sure, talking about that. Um, but but I'd really just like to look at your experience now. You know, looking back on those deployments, we've talked about your experience with, you know, a, I don't want to say archaic, but, you know, the original, right? The OG somewhat uh, <laughs> right. uh, A-10. And now you've got, like you said, helmet-mounted sites, you got targeting pods, you got laser-guided, GPS-guided munitions and stuff. So tell us a little bit about the, the the war in the A-10 cockpit now. Sure. Well, you know, the uh, it, it, it kind of happened in, in stages, so it wasn't too overwhelming but looking back it really is is amazing how like in yeah. 2003 when the uh, iraqi evasion again what we had i talked about earlier that we were the first unit to have the targeting pods but most of the missions we did in that war really would not have been possible without the targeting pod uh the main mm-hmm. missions we did on on uh the whole unit was there for a year but uh, most of us did like two two separate trips with a little uh, short break in the middle but we were supporting the, the special forces that were rounding up the deck of cards. You probably remember the mm-hmm. uh, they issued the playing cards. It was all the former regime members that they were trying to find. And uh, again, essentially what we would now call a kill capture mission. Uh, and those were very high intensity uh, missions. And you just simply couldn't have uh, done the mission without uh, the, the targeting pod, because you're talking about tracking individual people. You're talking about, keeping track of a, of a force that with the naked eye, you would have been pretty much uh, without a, a, a precision guided weapon that you could put in a pinpoint location. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you wouldn't have been able to do the mission uh, at all without that type of, of uh, uh, technology. So uh, and then advance that into uh, Afghanistan uh, where uh, the first few trips I did six uh, 
six deployments to Afghanistan, but the first few trips were without. Uh, we had the targeting pod, but we didn't have the helmet-mounted sight. So one of the hardest things is to figure out where your targeting pod is looking, <laughs> because we always like to say that uh, the ground commanders always want one more step than what you have. Yeah. So, for instance, <laughs> you know when you we got the targeting pod. They would say, okay, the, the initial versions of the targeting pod were, again, looking back, I mean, they were, they were revolutionary and we were like, this is incredible. But looking at it today, we'd think, wow, that resolution's not very good. And so, you know, you would say, well, this is amazing. I can see a person at, at five miles and I'm tracking this person that they think might be a insurgent. But then they'd say, is he, is he carrying any weapons? And then you're like, okay, I, I, I don't, I, I, I can see him. I can't tell whether he has a weapon. Yeah. And then, so then literally uh, on the, at the later stages, it, they, our resolution got good enough that we could, we could see whether he had a weapon or not. And he would say, yes, yeah. he's carrying a weapon. And they say, can you tell if it's, can you tell what kind of weapon? <laughs> and so you're like, oh, you guys are, you're always wanting that one more step that, uh, or, you know, can you, can you see if he's carrying a weapon? They would say, can you tell what color hat he has on? Because we're looking yeah. for a guy with a red hat. You're like, ah, oh, okay. I can't tell you that. <laughs> so uh, it seems like the the uh, the desire of the of the the ground forces, or the in in many cases the you know, the ground force commander, or the uh, what they now call the TEA, the the uh, target engagement authority, the guy that's going to tell you whether whether you can shoot or not, he's always looking for that one extra piece of of information. That it doesn't matter how advanced our stuff gets. It seems like we're you know we're one 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 more thing that they're looking for, but. Uh, uh, I can tell you just as an example, uh, in early on in Afghanistan, a lot of the targets were, were what we'd call an area target. You know, they're taking fire from a ridgeline. Uh, and we, you know, they, they, every once in a while they'd spot somebody movement, moving among the rocks. And they're like, we, we just, we need, just need some, some fire up there, uh, because we're taking a lot of incoming. And so, uh, we would drop, uh, airburst, uh, what we would now call a dumb bomb, a Mark 82 with an airburst on there, which has very good effects against an, an area. Mm-hmm. But then later on, uh, that became, you know, that was not allowed. They, you had mm-hmm. to have a specific exact point and your bomb had to be a precision bomb. So it would hit an exact point. And yeah. so, uh, we had to uh, modify, essentially modify how we, we did things to really to meet more of the ROE than the capabilities of the airplane. But the, the biggest thing that helped us vastly in a counterinsurgency in Afghanistan was the helmet mounted sight because now I can I can put my sensors exactly where I want it very quickly and I know exactly where it is that my because you're looking at stuff that's so zoomed in the hardest part is to to go wh- where am I looking where is it in the the big picture of things <laughs> yeah uh, you're trying to compare it to a house or or you know or a tree or right, something like right. do I see that tree Exactly. Now, I'm, I'm laughing because that's a, a very OH-58 Delta experience as well because we could move the site 180 degrees behind us, but you you couldn't see visually where that was looking. And so, oh, yeah, you, yeah, did, you spent a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, and you're just looking outside and you're trying to, you know, you, I mean, you had a little gauge that told you it was looking, you know, 90 degrees left and 10 degrees right, down. So you, right. you had there's an a, idea. A, in the display, it'll tell you roughly right. what direction it's looking, but not the same as now with the helmet-mounted sight. Oh, you know yeah. exactly where it's looking. So. Yeah, and then I go to the Apache, and it, it just, you know, I just flick a switch, and it, it, everything moves right where I want it to. So, 
Um, but yeah, and, uh, and certainly shared experiences with the, um, what kind of gun is it? What, what color shoes is he wearing? Like that. <laughs> right. I think right. that's what drives procurement. You know, they, they well, write that down. I need a piece of equipment that can identify yeah. colors of hats. And, and, and you can mark it on the, on the tape, you know, that I'm, I'm predicting at some point that's actually, they probably already have it. I just don't know about it. But the thing <laughs> we would always say at the, we'd go to the, to the, Harding pod conferences where they, they really, the engineers are great and they would just, they love any input from pilots because they, they're just designing what they think you want. They don't know what you want. So we've got to be kind of a running joke though, but every year we'd go and say, uh, we want the lightning pod. Cause that's the one that we have. Uh, uh, we want the lightning pod to shoot lightning. So we want to, <laughs> we want to, we want it to be able to shoot lightning at whatever we have under the crosshairs. And then that, uh, you know, the engineers would start, uh, at first they were like, okay, you know, but eventually they kind of would just start uh, saying we're working on that. So, yeah. and, oh, and yeah. I believe them, I believe them. I think at some point in the future, uh, it's just going to be that, uh, you know, you're not, you don't have to, the, the, the pod will be the weapon. You won't have yeah. to uh, guide the weapon with it. Cause that's uh, the next challenge yeah. is once you see somebody, you have to get into a position where you can, uh, well, I, I mean, you know, you're already thinking of Right. And, uh, on that point, you know, the, the probably the most revolutionary weapon that we've had in in certainly in recent years in a counterinsurgency type role is the the laser rocket. Uh, and I'm yeah. not sure if you're familiar with those, but that's yeah, we had those. Yeah, just absolutely astonishing the accuracy you get with that and what that lets oh, yeah. you do in in a insurgency type situation. So. Yeah, well, and you bring up a good point that, um, you know, I've had people ask me, like, well, why, why do you guys shoot so many Hellfires? You know, which is, you know, a, a baby Maverick, essentially. Right, um, right. You know, and, and well, you guys shoot so many of them at, at you know, people, and aren't they anti-tank weapons? Like, well, first, they've been modified. But second, in that type of environment, that's what you have to do. Because you can't just go in there just lob in a pot of rockets because there's other people no, around. No, absolutely. You know? Yeah. Um, and depending on the type of gun, now I know it can be very exact with the with the A-10s gun, but generally speaking, you're just not going to roll in there. You need something precise. And so, yeah, the ability to have laser and GPS-guided equipment is is paramount to, to fight a counterinsurgency. Yeah, for sure. But. Um, yeah, the, the helmet mounted sight thing. I, I mean, it sounds, it looks like that's kind of permeated across the, the fighter community. Um, the, the fast guys too. And, uh, and it like has, it kind of, it, it really kind of completes the circle with, uh, mm-hmm. you now have this super powerful sensor and now you have the ability to put it exactly where you want and keep the SA on, on where is it looking. And, uh, yeah. so I, you know, I like to think the A10 is, is, has truly become the, the, the Swiss Army knife in terms of uh, we can operate below a low ceiling and just do visual tactics, uh, like I guess what we, they would call old school tactics these days. Even if yeah. without a without any of the the sensors or uh, and with just using you know basic stuff on on uh, navigating all the way up to uh, dropping the the more advanced uh, uh, precision weapons with helmet mounted sight and, and and laser rockets and sensors and all the rest of it as well. So. Yeah. Uh, now, the, now that the doesn't challenge. that doesn't that still doesn't help us with the fact that our our radar cross section I think is is like much larger than a B fifty two, but that's just right. uh, that's the nature of having a whole bunch of stuff hanging off the bottom of the airplane. So yeah, comes with being ugly. Um, <laughs> what a well, yeah, beautiful ugly. But but you bring up a good point because it's a challenge that certainly Army aviation is dealing with, and and I'm sure other other flying fighting communities, but. The, the problem with coming up with different ways of fighting and having to have different types of equipment to fight with 
is you still only have a finite amount of training time. So whereas you started out very much focused on this low level, you know, in the weeds type of fight now, are, are guys still able to practice that a lot? Obviously they don't get as much time, but, but are you guys chasing these different types of focuses of training and, and employment? Well, I'll tell you, and I know, uh, you know, the focus of your, your podcast is on the air to ground and we've kind of really just been talking about a lot of different things, but yeah. uh, I can guarantee you that, uh, th- that's what makes the A10 community, uh, unique is that, you know, our focus, uh, we're not pulled in a lot of directions. Our, our focus yeah. is, is what do they need on the ground for our support? And that's what, you know, leading back to my former comment is, we, we we definitely still practice, and as an old guy, I make sure that our young guys are fully up to speed on everything from, uh, like I just talked about, you know, that, hey, we, we they need our support. They're in very close contact with an enemy, They need and the situation requires us to get below a very low weather deck, uh, at, maybe at night, uh, maybe in a, in a tight valley, and, and provide that close support in that situation and they can't even provide us a grid for the target. All they can say is we're here. Uh, we popped a smoke. We're taking fire from over there. And, and Mm -hmm. we, we train to, to that situation to where we can, we can help him to, uh, get our firepower on that enemy safely all the way to the point of, and then all the way in the spectrum, all the way to where, uh, we're above the weather and we can drop uh, precision munitions through the weather and, and he can provide us good grids and mm-hmm. and we can still provide uh, the, the stuff that uh, that we particularly train to. Like we don't just put in grids and say, here comes the bomb. Right. We even in that situation, we are going to maintain awareness of where he is, where he thinks he is. Uh, where the where he thinks the enemy is and how far away that is and is it safe to employ in this particular direction and we're gonna it's a it's a team it's a team effort and we're gonna uh, we're gonna work with them to make sure we're doing it uh, safely and, and effectively so we're gonna back him up uh, you know it's very easy and I haven't been in a ground firefight and I certainly hope I, I never am but we can <laughs> you know we know that that's he's in a whole lot of stress and in many cases we may be in a less stress situation. So we're going to back him up uh, and, and say, Hey, you might want to have us put the bomb in from this direction versus that way. Or are you sure that your closest uh, friendlies are this far away? Cause on my, my sensor, I'm showing you that you're only this far away or, you know, or, Hey, that's pretty close for that bomb. You, you, you sure you need it right there. How about if, can you back up? Can you, yeah. you know, we're going to ask those questions versus, okay, you told us the, the, the grids here, here it comes. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, we like to think that we still train. Well, I, I, I can't say that, you know, we don't we don't think we do. We, we still train for that entire spectrum of, of, of situations where uh, where the A-10 still has some some pretty unique capabilities on that. Yeah. So you have exceeded 7000 hours. So I can safely say that no one in the universe has more time flying the a10 than you right? <laughs> uh I, I, that that's an interesting way to put it but uh, <laughs> well, uh just, I, I i have to agree with that yeah um, yeah just pad your resume oh, a little bit with that and, um, and how that happened is uh is as surprising to me as just about anyone i uh, <laughs> as a kid that built the model kit uh you know in high school and yeah. thought that man, man this, wouldn't that be cool if i ever get to fly this and then actually yeah. getting to fly it uh and then 
somehow ending up with the most time of anybody flying it is uh is pretty surreal to me and it's pretty special uh uh you know i i and i i still i th- i think it's more special because i didn't it was never a goal of mine i didn't like you know mm-hmm. fly try to fly extra extra long missions or uh or uh, slow down to to get more flying time on the way back i've always uh, kind of prided myself on trying to maximize all the time that I get in the airplane as far as making it effective training. Um, and, you know, and I, I also don't, uh, uh, I'll take every hour they give me. I'm going to, I'm going to use it to the maximum of my ability. And it's like coming back with bullets that they give you to shoot. I, I don't do that either. If they, <laughs> if they say, Hey, you can go shoot a hundred bullets. You can bet I'm going to go shoot a hundred bullets. I'm not going to, uh, yeah. I'm not going to pass up that opportunity, but, uh, uh, but I haven't chased it. I've just been super lucky uh, uh, to to be in this unit uh, that's been able to uh, you know keep keep the A10. A lot of the other units that I could have gone to have have closed or gone to different missions or are no longer flying the A10. And uh, yeah, and and been able to you know uh, uh, stay healthy and and uh, and and just and keep doing it. And, and you know the units I've been have have supported my uh, choices as far as, Hey, I want to, uh, I'm not going to pursue a promotion. I'd like to just keep, keep, uh, flying and, and, uh, being an instructor, being an evaluator and and trying to, uh, you know, help to help and teach the future generations of, of a 10 pilots, however many of those generations there are, uh, who knows how long the airplane's going to, going to stick around. So how much more, do you have in you? I mean, did you look? Well, I, I'm. Uh, I have. Uh, I have the paperwork that says I can go to age sixty. So that's in about three years. Uh, oh, and okay. I, uh, I may pursue uh, an extension to see if I can go, uh, maybe a couple of years longer than that. But uh, at least, uh, at least age sixty is my plan right now. Okay, great. Well, that sounds absolutely amazing. Like you said, to to be able to to live your dream. Um, you know, I, I'm lucky enough to 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 fly things that I looked at as a kid and I'm like, Oh, that'd be cool. So, um, but to be able to do it for as long as you have and, and to have, I mean, just really the spectrum of, of the A-10 doing its job. I mean, really desert storm was the first time it was used in combat, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, to and, be able to just do that from the Genesis to now is, is incredible. And I, I still get a, a, a kick out of, uh, cause and, and you've experienced it as well, I'm sure, but you know, it doesn't really seem that long ago. And yet, uh, uh, you know, when, when one of the young guys will introduce me to somebody in the squadron, you know, it usually goes like they'll say, and, and he flew in Desert Storm. And the way that they their, their tone of voice is pretty much like introducing someone that, that fought in World War One or right. something like that. So uh, but uh, but you realize that, you know, most a lot of them weren't, uh, you know, weren't alive uh, at that yeah. time. In fact, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, no, it's like showing up to a helicopter unit and, and and saying you don't know what Airwolf is. Like you're talking about <laughs> right, it's kind of right. the same thing. Airwolf, what's yeah, that? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, I can't thank Colonel Marks enough for taking the time. Uh, we actually had to do that interview multiple times, as I told you before in the interview. We we had some technical issues, uh, and in fact, to the point that we. Uh, we called it off one day because it just was not working, and then we managed to get back together on Zoom a couple days later. So uh, a big thank you to him for taking the time out and sharing his experiences, which uh, I think if you're a fan of military aviation in general, 
you're probably a fan of the A10, and uh, certainly Desert Storm and the A10. There's just some absolutely amazing feats of of airmanship going on there. So uh, a big thanks to him for not only his service, but uh, for for taking the time and talking to all of us here on the show and, and for you guys listening at home. And while we're thanking people, I want to say a big thank you to my Patreon supporters who uh, help uh, financially support the show. And, and not only that, just uh, encouragement. So, you know, as I was kind of alluding to before, you know, there's a lot going on in my life, changing uh, jobs and uh, flooding, flooding houses and things. Uh, so sometimes it, it is very easy to just kind of like, ah, I don't want to get back into the podcast or I'll wait till next week. Uh, but the, uh, but knowing that patrons are there to, to support, but also just the, the emotional support, I guess, if you will, you know, there are people who listen to the show who will send in an email or they'll shoot me a message on uh, Facebook or something. And, uh, even just leaving a review, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll go in and actually look at the reviews that people leave on Apple and, uh, those things are, they mean a lot. They, they really do. So I appreciate it. If you're someone who has sent in, I've, I try to get back to everyone if I, if I didn't get back to you, I apologize. I probably missed you. You probably sent it at one of those times where I was just completely overwhelmed. Uh, but uh, but I, I do try to say thanks to uh, for everyone who writes in. Or if you have a question, I do try to address it. Um, but thank you for all of that support, for listening to the show. And uh, I hope uh, we can uh, get back on track. You know, Just uh, bear with me as we get through things. But I'm going to, like I said, we just got episode uh, 27 recorded. And uh, I'm going to get on uh, editing it this week. So hopefully we can get it out by the end of February. And this one uh, should be dropping here uh, mid-February. So uh, as a reminder, of course, the uh, comments made by the guests and hosts do not represent the Department of Defense or any private businesses. And we appreciate you guys listening and supporting the show. And we'll see you again here in a few weeks. Thanks a lot. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.